Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. Coming up in this episode, we meet an accelerator physicist who explains how optimizing proton therapy technologies can improve cancer care. But first, we explore the relationship between physics and art in a conversation with the artist Geraldine Cox, who has a physics background and now collaborates with physicists at Imperial College London and other research institutes. She chats with Physics World's James Dacey about her recent exploration of the wave-particle duality of light. And she also talks about a series of workshops that she's run for schools during the pandemic. So hi, Geraldine. Thanks for joining the podcast today. It's a pleasure. Pleasure to be here. So you studied um, physics before you studied art, and now you're working as an artist with physicists at Imperial College and, and elsewhere. Um, yeah, it sounds like a really fascinating journey. Have you always had an interest in both science and art? Yes, I. it has been a fascinating journey. It's like a dream job for me. And yes, I always have had an interest in uh, science and art, but I think like many especially when you're learning, you only tend to be able to focus on one thing at one time. So when I was studying physics, I wasn't really thinking about art. And actually, <laughs> when I was doing art, I wasn't really thinking about physics. It was only actually after graduating in art that I asked myself the question that I think all artists must do when they, they start a career, which is, well, what do I want to spend my time talking about with these new skills that I have. And that was when I decided to merge both fields, really. One thing I felt, um, at, at school at least, was that, you know, as you kind of moved up school, you, you were kind of divided almost. There was a slightly artificial divide between the arts and the sciences. And I, and I know in, in a recent talk, you spoke about how expressive subjects um, can go hand in hand with what, what you called the knowledge subjects, which I think includes um, physics and the sciences. Why do you think that divide does exist and what could be gained if education systems were to take a more holistic approach? Well, why does that divide exist? Honestly, I'm not an educational expert, so I don't really know. But things have evolved historically, I imagine. The current syllabus seems to me to have come out of the last 150 years and in some ways is organised to provide new people into the new workforce in some ways or people into universities and maybe it's been convenient to organise things that way. Uh, from my own background with teaching that I do at the moment, when people do find different ways to talk about what they know, something moves from being just a piece of knowledge to something with meaning and maybe something even that's kind of emotionally felt and, and imaginatively explored. Scientists work in a certain way and they need to know how to work in a certain way and there's not for one moment would I want to take that away from anybody, but there's a whole world of people who won't become scientists. That's most people. And yet science and the natural world and nature itself is so imaginative itself and so wonderful. It seems a shame to deny access to that just because some people don't have a kind of maybe scientific mindset, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And it feels like there is, there's so much to be explored in nature that could be explored in maybe different ways and talked about in different ways. And so do you think, yeah, from the point of view of, say, somebody at school who, who loved art and science, but then they're kind of funneled into a, 
a science career. Um, you know, if, if the syllabus were to be changed slightly so that people continue doing arts, you know, even if they were heading towards a science career, you know, do, do you think those people could gain a lot from continuing to, to, to think about art and artistic processes? Well, I think so possibly they could because um, it means that everything they're learning is open up to an alternative interpretation expressively by them. And uh, so they can really explore things in more detail, in more ways, um, and bring the thing to life a little bit more. For example, just really simple things like there's this classic curve that uh, physicists call the black body spectrum. And every warm thing, like my body, for example, and the sun, all have their own spectrum. And it's all the different frequencies that come off something that's warm. But the spectrum has a very particular curve according to the temperature. And uh, one thing that we've explored doing just at Imperial, just for fun, was changing that round into a burst of, um, instead of light frequencies, light photons. So light's made of these little particles. But how might that look as a black body spectrum? Because light is like a burst of particles. And uh, so just exploring, just doing things in different ways or turning atomic spectra, for example, these beautiful lines of light that every atom produces, unique to the type of atom that it is. Um, recently, we've explored turning those into sound notes. Those projects you, you spoke about, were they part of the uh, the Finding Patterns project at Imperial Yes, College? absolutely, yes, which is really just Geraldine Cox's project. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Um, so, so, with, so with that project, um, I know you've, um, you know, congratulations, you've recently had your 10-year anniversary of that project. Thank you. Um, um, so you're, you're working with the scientists. I mean, t- tell me a bit about that process. You know, h- how does um, a collaboration work? Who, who's doing what at what moment? <laughs> it really all <laughs> depends. I mean, it's so informal and it all depends on on what we're up to, really. I, I work a lot with a one particular group at Imperial in particular, and it's a group from something called the Centre for Cold Matter. What they do is investigate atoms and molecules at super cold temperatures, so colder than the universe. The universe is 3 Kelvin's temperature, so minus 270 degrees Celsius, but they're at much lower temperatures, microkelvins and lower. And they do a lot of work with matter and they control it with light. So there's a lot of lasers talking to matter and they're a great group to work with. So I work with them and other people. But how how does that happen? I just guess I get a question into my mind about something that can be one starting point. And I'll say, what's the answer to this question? Can we explore it? Or I'll be thinking about something and I'll say, can we look at this in a different way? Or they'll be putting a proposal together and they'll say, we'd love to include in this some piece of work uh, that includes community engagement or whatever. What can we do? And we'll think about that. So it comes from all sorts of different impulses. I don't know if that paints a picture. It's a very fluid thing. (laughs) Yeah, no, it sounds great great that you're you're able to follow your your interests. And uh, yes, it's not all kind of laid out in front of you. But, you know, with, with art, science collaborations there there seems to be a spectrum really some works are very much on the end of you know this is a piece of work which is communicating um, a scientific concept and I suppose the other end of the spectrum is a sort of pure work of art which maybe 
took some inspiration initially from the science, but then you know, went off in a purely expressive um, artistic direction. When you're working with scientists, um, do you ever feel the final work needs to, you know, somehow have some literal scientific meaning to it? Or or do you feel completely free to do whatever you want? That's a great question. Um, Actually, probably the scientists that work with me might say that Geraldine is more obsessed with the detail and accuracy than we are. (laughs) (laughs) So I... um, I'm really, I'm excited about working within constraints. I think that's what makes good art, actually. Um, and so to take uh, the truth, some objective information about nature and work within that, uh, that's just totally exciting. So I'm very big on accuracy, actually, <laughs> um, and working within that. But then, you know, within that, there's so much scope. And uh, then you can, uh, so a lot of my work involves finding a convention for an idea. So what's the best way to express this idea? But then you have so much scope in terms of the colours you choose, the scale you choose. For me, every work piece of work has to pass two tests, really. It, ha- it does have to be truthful to nature and what we've discovered. But then it has to also be able to totally, pretty much stand alone so that someone who doesn't know anything about the science and hasn't read any explanation could just enjoy it. I wouldn't be interested in making work that couldn't do that and just be enjoyed by people. And so I try to do both, James, is the answer. You know, emotion and feeling comes into it because I really wanted to communicate a great optimism in my work, a sense of joy, actually, about the beauty of nature Mm -hmm. and a, a sense of generosity and um, so that informs a lot of the decisions I make about form. I suppose all the things you're talking about there, they all um, come together in one of the recent series of paintings you've been working on, which um, is inspired by Young's double split experiment. You've created some work which has been published very recently. Tell me about that project, you know, again, what the inspiration was and, um, you know, some, some of the collaborations along the way and the decisions you took. Pretty much, as I said, a lot of the starting points for my work is just I have this question. So I'm really a curious person and and pretty much most of my work is sort of curiosity driven. And so this is going back a few years when this project started. Maybe I'd been sitting in lectures with students or attending some workshops. I'd seen this phenomena described where we see these beautiful, what we call interference fringes in light and uh, James, you mentioned young slits, but I was thinking of a very particular setup, which is an interferometer setup, which is just a, a sort of a, it's a relative of that project, of that experiment, the young slit experiment. And I'd seen this beautiful phenomenon of interference fringes, these sort of striped bands. And I'd heard that how when people try to find out a bit more about what's going on, and we're talking about tiny particles of light making this or tiny particles of matter, these beautiful bands disappear and people say really dramatic things like um, the interference was destroyed or we destroyed it by trying to find out more information I don't know if you've heard that James you you hear it with um, quantum mechanics don't you and information is destroyed by absolutely and it's a quantum mechanical experiment it's Mm -hmm. about the tiniest things and I'm always slightly skeptical of these really dramatic words so I I kept saying to a colleague of mine but where's it gone where's the interference gone (laughs) 
And and why has it gone? And he said, well, you know, it hasn't it hasn't gone anywhere. You just have to look more carefully. And um, one evening he had a bit of quiet time and he hand wrote out the explanation in a kind of um, semi-scientific uh, and it's just a little handwritten scientific paper explaining where it, it had gone. And I, I sort of looked at this for quite some time and I said to him, you know, there's a way we can show this. There's a way we can do this. And he said, I don't think so. You know, it's just sine waves. I don't think there's a way to do this. I said, no, I really think so. I started sketching a way of showing uh, that the interference wasn't lost, that you just had to look at this entire system. And then we just, we, we saw, okay, it could work. So he programmed it in Mathematica and we started producing designs. And these were designs with 20 or 30, uh, maybe more thousand triangles or semicircles. And I said, well, this would just be great fun to turn into a painting, you know, a big, colorful painting about the smallest things in the universe. And these hidden connections, these subtle, these are such subtle connections that are hard to maintain. It would be a lovely thing to just explore. And so then, then started a bit of an experimental project. How do you make a painting like that? Uh, and uh, the technicians at Imperial um, helped, tried to make, help me make printing tools. They failed, uh, and so mm. we turned to other means. And so, uh, and then, and then work started. Just okay, how can we make the first painting? And then, actually, that came out, and that's the one on the cover of uh, Physics Today. One of the new initiatives you've been working on is um, online workshops for for children. So was that. Um, that was the first time you had done that. I mean, how, how did it go? I mean, was it yeah. a challenge to not be there in person or, you know, did it, did it work perfectly online? Well, it's been so interesting. So just the backdrop to these workshops is with this, uh, this group that I've been mentioning at the Centre for Cold Matter, we did develop a series of workshops called Atom Days. And you, you can visit that. It's worldofatoms.com. And it was aimed at eight, 10-year-old children to teach them um, the basic ideas about atoms and in some ways actually quite advanced ideas so for example we we'd explore the vibrations inside atoms that physicists call wave functions and things that they might reach if they got to degree level physics so it's and we'd also explore how tiny atoms are how that in one centimeter cube there are as many atoms as there are stars in the visible universe so we explore these really big and important ideas and scales and that was all working super well in, in schools. And we mixed experiment with discussion, with art. It was a completely seamless, sort of beautiful day. The pandemic came along and we took that workshop and turned it into three online hours. And between times, the children go away and make work in response to what they've just learned. And the next session starts with an online exhibition of all of the work that's being made and a discussion. And then we get onto the next thing that we want to talk about. And how has that worked? Well, it's different to being in school, not surprisingly, but there've been some really lovely benefits, which are that we can bring colleagues together to teach children from anywhere at any time. So at one stage I was online with a colleague I have in Paris and children in London and we can all just get together and everyone was sitting at home and we can chat and ask questions and that's been fantastic. And then because it's so economical with scientists' time, we can get together the following week and the week after that. So there's this really nice sort of 
kind of repeated relationship that that grows which is really enjoyable if somebody is listening to this who maybe is a physics teacher how could they get involved you know and get their um, students into one of these workshops oh drop me a line (laughs) just (laughs) look me up uh, uh, emails on my website and uh, yeah just just absolutely drop me a line and actually now at the moment we're looking at working with dance and um and we're making dance videos uh, about these sort of topics uh, where the children basically have a 25-minute dance class with dancers from the Place Dance Conservatoire in London about these about some of the ideas that we've been discussing. So you may be involved in that if you drop me a line. So in terms of your own um, artworks that you're creating, um, do you have anything else in, in the pipeline for the, for the coming months or, or years? That's a really good question. I have the, these really big paintings are just on the go in the background. But then I really am keen to do something, I think, with glass, coloured glass, and glass with its different properties as lenses and dichroic glass. I'm sketching it out. I have a sketched out exhibition at the moment. Of course, this all requires a huge amount of money, so whether it will ever get off a drawing board, who knows. But um, that, and also... I would really love to do some work on something called Noether's theorems. I don't know if you've come across Emmy Noether. Emmy, Emmy Noether, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she she was working. When was she working? Early twentieth century, and she just came up with this incredibly beautiful and super important theorem. She connected the conservation laws of energy and momentum that are so important. All the conservation laws with this idea of of symmetry when you do something to something and it remain it, it stays unchanged and um, has really changed the way we do a great deal of physics, particularly physics about the smallest things in the world. And I would really love to find some way to talk about this. And, and I always feel that when you ask questions like this out of something very particular, asking this sort of question, a sort of a bigger theme emerges that isn't just about physics, it's sort of about life or the way we think about things. We're speaking today on International Women's Day and, you know, perhaps someone like Emi Noto isn't as well known as some male scientists. So I guess, you know, through this artwork, it it can also be a great way to finally bring awareness to, to these great female scientists. Oh, that's right. And that's a great point about International Women's Day. Absolutely. There's an obituary written by Einstein about Emmy Noether in the New York Times, I think it was. And he's so complimentary about her, but he still caveats her work with something like, this is the most important work to come from a woman ever or something like that. And <laughs> classic it's, 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 it's a real classic man statement. And actually, it's yeah. just basically really important work. And uh, at the time when she was working, I don't think, I think there were so many constraints on what she could do. Um, you can read all about it in Wikipedia, but yeah, it's super important work. She united two huge groups of men, two huge groups of fields of, of thinking. Um, yeah, so you're absolutely right, James. I think there's an, a really nice opportunity there to to get her name out there. And I also think, you know, in these times of where we need to manage the Earth's resources, the idea of conservation laws I sort of have this hunch that the work might take us somewhere interesting related to that as well. Okay, Geraldine, well, thank you very much for joining today. It's a pleasure. I've really enjoyed uh, these interesting questions. That was the artist and physicist Geraldine Cox in conversation with James Dacey. Using proton beams to destroy tumours is an important treatment for some cancers. 
Up next, Physics World's Tammy Freeman chats with Karsten Welsh at the University of Liverpool, who is coordinator for a European training network called Optimization of Medical Accelerators. He explains how the network is working to improve cancer care. I'm speaking today with Karsten Welsh, Head of the Department of Physics at the University of Liverpool. Hello, Karsten. Hi. Karsten is also the coordinator for a training network called Optimization of Medical Accelerators, or OMA. Now, this network brings together more than 30 organisations, including universities, research centres, treatment facilities and industry partners, to work on projects that will improve the performance of proton therapy, which is used to treat cancer. So, Carsten, can you tell us a little bit more about the benefits of proton therapy and why the OMA network was established? Yeah, so I think fundamentally the the concept of all types of radiation therapy is to bring energy to the tumor inside the body of a patient and and ultimately to kill kill the the cancer uh, cells. There's, There's different ways of doing that. One could either use the x-rays that most people will be familiar with when they they had a broken arm or leg or they they go to their dentist. Now, with with x-rays, a nice feature is that they can go all the way through the body of a patient, so they can reach pretty much any region inside the body. Um, But if you look at the um, energy profile, the way that the energy is deposited, um, actually, a lot of the energy is um, deposited in, over the first few centimeters, and, and a lot less energy reaches uh, deeper areas in the body. So if you're thinking about a tumor that's maybe 10, 15 centimeters inside the body, fundamentally, it means you are depositing a lot of energy in an area where there are healthy cells and where you wouldn't normally like to deposit the energy. So it's it's working as a treatment, but it's probably not ideal. In terms of other particle species, you could also consider using electrons. There, the situation is even a bit worse because electrons cannot enter the body for more than, say, 12 centimeters. um, And then there's nothing left of the electron beam. So again, you are facing the issue of depositing a lot of energy at the region of the skin, the first few centimeters, and very limited energy, if any energy at all, deeper in the body of the patient. Now, protons are sort of the magic bullet uh, in that regard uh, because they allow the radiation to enter into the body of the patient and deposit the energy only at the location and the depth uh, where it is required. So fundamentally, you you enter the body of the patient, you deposit hardly any, any energy in the healthy tissue, and after 10, 15, or 20 centimeters, all of a sudden you have a phenomenon which is called the Bragg peak. And that's where there's a huge spike in energy deposition. And afterwards, the energy deposition also drops to almost zero. So you can really target uh, the tumor inside the body of the patient much more precisely. Now, that's the idea. And in order to make most of the idea, it requires a number of different communities to come together. Obviously, it requires oncology specialists, the clinical doctors to, to work on this, but then also the, the instrument builders, both those. Um, that are designing and operating the machine that provides the proton beam, but also those that are developing the instrumentation that is required to monitor the beam as well as the patient. And the idea of the OMA network is to bring all of these um, aspects together 
and uh, to build bridges between communities to improve photon beam therapy. Great. And, and so what are the main goals of the network? So there were, in, in terms of research goals, it is clearly to improve cancer care for specific cancer types, so deep-seated tumors, and to use proton and ion beam therapy to help beat cancer sooner, um, if you like. Um, in addition, the network is also a training initiative. So within the network, we had more than a dozen early uh, career researchers that are all being trained as part of the program. So these researchers are based at all of these organizations across Europe, and they, they form a network in themselves that over a time frame of four years, they are becoming experts um, in the optimization of medical accelerators. Okay, so the network's involved in a wide range of projects. And one that caught my interest is your work with the Clatterbridge Cancer Centre in the UK. Now, the UK's only launched its high-energy proton therapy facilities quite recently, but Clatterbridge was actually the world's first hospital-based proton therapy centre, and it's been offering low-energy proton therapy for eye cancer treatments since 1989. So what's the difference between these two types of proton therapy? Yeah, so the, the process that I um, described earlier on, so how the proton beam reaches an area that is inside the body of the patient, um, I guess triggers the question, how do you actually target um, your, your cancer volume inside of the body? And um, in particular, how do you make sure that you reach a certain depth in, inside of the body of the patient? Now, the penetration depth depends directly on the energy of the particle beam. So the higher the beam energy, the deeper um, the proton beam goes into the body of the patient. So at Clatterbridge, the maximum energy is uh, 60 million volts. So that's a particle that um, overcomes a potential difference of 60 million volts and then has this energy. And that's enough to go a few centimeters in, into the body of a human patient. And that's the reason why the proton beams at Clatterbridge were used for the treatment of ocular cancer because the eyeball um, is a, a few centimeters and, and that's where you can basically reach every part of the eye. Now, if you would like to go to uh, deeper um, areas in the body, you need a facility that is significantly larger, that goes significantly higher in energy, maybe 250 million volts. And uh, that is just fundamentally a different accelerator infrastructure that then allows to go all the way to 15, 20 centimeters um, into the body. Okay. And that's, that's um, this more high energy is what's being used in the new proton therapy centers that are just sort of being set up in the UK. Yeah, exactly. So after seeing the, the many benefits of proton beam therapy on the example of Kletterwich and, and other facilities, um, now the UK has also joined um, an international initiative in making proton beams available more widely and for uh, many different um, cancer types, not, not just the eye tumors. Okay, and now Clatterbridge, I, I gather that due to the age of the facility, there, there were many unknowns about the magnetic fields used to accelerate and guide the proton beam. So why was this a problem? When we started working with, with Clatterbridge, which is really just down the road um, for us from, from Liverpool, we really needed to look into all of the different aspects that make the OMA network. So with, within the consortium, we have three different scientific work packages uh, one looks at the development of new instrumentation, and that's instrumentation both for monitoring the patient, how they move, how they breathe, uh, but also um, monitoring uh, the beam, both in the accelerator and also inside the patient during the treatment. 
The second work package is, is on simulation studies in the widest sense. So simulating a beam as it propagates uh, through a beam line, uh, but also simulating what a beam is doing inside of the patient. So how do um, the particles interact with the cells and what kind of effect does that have? And thirdly, um, we have a work package that looks specifically at the design and optimization of treatment centers, so a facility like Letterbridge. So when we started um, the collaboration with Letterbridge, we wanted to find out um, how the facility was designed, how it's transporting the beam from the iron source all the way to the patient. And we were uh, surprised to some extent that there were very uh, little and very limited models only available. To some extent, um, you could say that this doesn't matter too much for the actual treatment because what's happening on the day of the treatment is that the medical doctors, they determine the exact dose that is delivered to the patient by doing a calibration measurement. So they know exactly what is reached, what, what kind of energy and dose reaches the patient. And you could say they're not that interested in what's happening between the iron source and the patient. So the whole accelerator is fundamentally a black box. But if you are then thinking about optimizing beam transport of maybe getting a higher intensity um, for the treatment, reducing losses, and fundamentally finding out more about what the beam is doing all the way through the machine, you need a more sophisticated model. So we started building um, a more realistic models, three-dimensional models that take into account the realistic field distributions that you mentioned, all of the different elements. And we found a number of surprises. We found, for example, that the polarity of some magnets was completely opposite from what we were told they should be. So we took measurements and, and then really up, updated um, all of this information. And in the end, um, we, we came up with now quite a detailed model um, of the Petterbridge facility, which really tells us how the beam is behaving all the way from the source um, to the moment that it is delivered to the patient. We needed to include new diagnostics for that purpose. So that's another work package. Um, and, and that has helped to give us more insight into the beam. And we also needed them to look into how can we possibly, for the future, make all of the facility better. And that's another work package within the um, OMA facility. So, so you can see that all of these things all of a sudden um, come together. And, um, and, I, and I think that's what made the, uh, the work with Flatterbridge and for Flatterbridge so interesting. Excellent. So, I mean, obviously, you say you've done a lot of this sort of beamline characterization. And you're also working to help with sort of quality assurance and measuring the dose delivered to the patient. So what does this involve? Yeah, so at the moment, usually at, at any um, of these treatment facilities, a considerable part of the time needs to go into these quality assurance or QA activities, uh, which normally take place at the beginning of a day. That's basically a measurement where patients are not involved, but where verified that the exact dose that should be delivered is actually delivered. So that's a sensor, that's a measurement that is done um, to, to, ma to make sure that everything is running as it should. And that can take considerable time, 20 to 30% of the overall um, treatment time. And this is time that is ultimately lost for patient treatment because during that time, you can't treat patients. So if you had quality assurance tools that are online, that are functioning all of the time, that could replace these early day measurements, then uh, you could treat more patients. So in addition to fundamentally knowing all of the time what's exactly happening in your machine, a real online monitoring system um, would also allow you to enhance treatment overall because more patients can benefit from that. 
Now, um, in Omar, we, we saw that there are ways of, of doing that, and a number of partners have looked into different technologies, and that's an effort that's ongoing. Um, we, we are just working on a completely new um, concept on a gas jet-based monitor, which could be um, a monitor that could be operational all of the time, even during treatment, and give us exact information about the beam um, that is used for the treatment. And, and that, of course, improves the safety, it improves the knowledge about the beam, and thus it, it, it benefits the cancer care. Yeah, so I mean, I guess all of these developments, they're all going to help the patients that are coming to Clatterbridge for their eye treatments. Can these technology developments be applied elsewhere? So are other proton therapy facilities? Yeah, so the, there's, there's two important things. Um, one, um, when we started to look at the beam transport, uh, you are quite right, we didn't do that because we were so fascinated by the beam transport as such. We wanted to benefit the patients. We wanted to help improve the cancer care. So that's always the ultimate goal. So um, that's also why it was then required um, to take full advantage of the different skills and expertise um, that is available within the network. So in, in Liverpool, we have developed a very sophisticated model of the beam transport as such. This model was then shared with colleagues who are based at CERN in Switzerland, and they looked into how does that actual uh, beam distribution then interact with, with the cells. So they, they were developing biological models that are looking into how does that proton beam distribution that we now know is a realistic representation of the beam how does that actually impact on the cells? And then again, that model was shared with colleagues in Munich at Ludwig Maximilians University, and, and they um, used that to look into treatment planning systems. So they looked into how does that dose distribution cell and knowledge about the cell interaction help us improve the treatment plans. So different places, completely different areas of research all coming together because of the network. So what are benefits for other facilities? So um, you, could, you could almost see Clatterbridge as a case study. Um, any of these um, facilities uh, in the UK, but also abroad, um, benefits from design optimizations of the main accelerator, of the beam lines, of the way that the patient is positioned. So all of the models, all of the new diagnostic tools, the sensors, all of these uh, simulation activities, and also the data that we took at Clatterbridge benefit other facilities as well. So you, you normally start with one, say, prototype, um, and you, you benchmark your results until you fully understood what you are doing. And now it can benefit many other facilities in the UK and abroad. Excellent, and benefit lots of patients as well. Thanks very much, Carsten, for speaking with us today. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Karsten Welsh, Geraldine Cox, Tammy Freeman, and James Dacey for joining me. And a special thanks to our producer, Callum Jelf. Join me next week when we'll be talking about the myriad scams that constitute research misconduct and how one physics publisher is countering them. Physics World.